0: I think we just have to be cognizant of the wider macroeconomic climate and what funding is available and what challenges are out there, and we have to respond to those. But with those risks and those challenges, there always comes opportunity. Welcome to the Payments Powerhouses podcast, where we discuss current trends with the movers and shakers in the fintech industry. Brought to you by 2C2P, your trusted payment solutions provider in Asia and beyond.
1: I'm Suhan, your host for the show. Our guest today is John Harvey, a leader in the financial world, having been at Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, EY and GFI Group. And right now he's at Standard Chartered, especially the CFO at SC Ventures. So welcome to the show, John.
0: Thank you very much, Suhan.
1: I've heard that you have recently moved back to the UK from Singapore. So how are things over in the UK?
0: Yeah, good. I mean, I miss Singapore. Singapore is an amazing place. But London, again, it's still buzzing. The weather today is probably a little bit wet. But um, yeah, it's uh, good to be back. Um, I do miss Singapore and I'll be uh, paying it a visit real soon.
1: Nice, nice. How is the fintech scene in the UK or in Europe compared to Singapore or Southeast Asia?
0: Yeah, I think the market in Europe and the UK is... I think it's a bit more mature. There's a lot more VCs, there's a lot more money, there's a more established market. But look at Singapore, it's got a young, vibrant market and it's got a lot of capability and a lot more vibrancy. So at the time I spent in Singapore, the founders of businesses and they've got a different way of thinking versus Europe. So I think there's a mass market appeal in somewhere like Southeast Asia and Asia versus the UK and Europe where they're looking at trying to look at the more established markets and trying to do things differently. So there's a different dynamic, different buzz, but still great markets to be in. It's a really uh, great place. Great. great to hear.
1: So I think before we get but in terms of what is SE Ventures, I'd love to know what's your career journey like? How do you get to where you are right now?
0: If I was to describe it, it would be take a path less trodden. And what do I mean by that? Take the roles that are a bit more exotic. So when I started training as an accountant, it gave me that great insight into how businesses are run, how they're reported, what does tax do, all the nuances very, very early on around finance. And then journeyed through doing corporate finance with one of the big four EY and got to know how to do deals, what M&A is, flotations buying and selling companies and what that means. And then you have that good grounding for the rest of your career. And it's taken me through a series of different banks. I've worked at Barclays, as you mentioned, Deutsche Bank and, and JP Morgan with all CFO roles. Um, and as you go through your career, you always learn new things, such as fund management. We have fund at SE Ventures. Uh, you learn how to look at the market and read what's going on there. So throughout all your roles going through, you always take away a big learning or a series of learnings that you can take onto the next role or or develop it further. So moving one job to another, you always take a skill set or an insight with you. And I think because I've got this varied skill set, it's played very well into the current role where you deal with all sorts, end-to-end of finance, and and it's played a broad technical capability, which has served me very well.
1: So did you immediately end up at SC Ventures right away or were you at a different role in Standard Chartered?
0: Yeah, I started off my career in, in the IT world at Standard Chartered in Singapore, looking after their infrastructure, looking at their the data rooms, IT and that kind of thing. did that for a number of years and then I got talking to our CEO, uh, Alex Manson, and he said he's gonna, starting a new area, a venture building arm, and would I be interested just to have a look at it? And uh, that was five years ago. And we've grown it from strength to strength, from basically a cost center to effectively a division of a bank in less than five years. So we've gone from strength to strength and speed in a very short space of time. So it's been a very, very busy, scaled up journey. So, what is SE Ventures? What's its purpose? The main premise is that if we don't disrupt ourselves, somebody might do it for us. And incumbent banks, like ourselves, have a series of challenges. We're heavily regulated. They're not as nimble as they could be. We've got a series of challenger banks that are looking at eating our lunch. We've got a lot of fintechs that are looking at our capabilities. And if we don't build those capabilities ourselves, we may just get taken over by others or people at your market share. So we've set up a series of uh, ventures to help us get that competitive edge. We have a fund that looks at minority investments. We buy small stakes in startup companies with the aim of getting Proprietary access, first user advantage and some of our early startup businesses to get the edge but also set up our own businesses and try and get partnerships with other people to help us scale and try and get new ideas, new ways of doing businesses just to really change the way we do banking. And we've got some considerable success over the last few years in, in that space. So we try and emulate what we do in the market with ourselves. And, you know, we're not afraid to disrupt ourselves and our own business models in the process.
1: So it's kind of different from traditional VCs, right? Because S. E. Ventures has the support of standard chartered and your capabilities
0: and the ecosystem. Definitely. That's a huge advantage having the bank behind you. It's a great place, a great bank to have a name behind. But the difference between a traditional VC and what effectively we are as a corporate VC is we can't fake it till we make it. We're a heavily regulated bank. So when you do things, when you look under the hood, all the right things have to be in the right place. So we have to take a, a lot more attention to detail in the things that we do. The other approach where we differ to VCs is that we invest probably a lot more in ourselves to start with and then slowly divest rather than a VC that may take more of a smaller stake. So we build things more in a proprietary way rather than you know a passive way with a little bit more active management. So it is a different model. We are a lot more active in our ventures than say a traditional VC. And it takes a little bit longer, but then the output you see is a lot more qualitative in terms of, you know, when you look at the venture itself, there's a lot more risk frameworks, a lot more governance, etc. So you build a a very good, strong, yet nimble venture in its own right. And the advantage for doing that in-house is that we have a large access to technical <laughs> capabilities with a strong IT presence, but it also gives you that ability to really assess the business model in great detail. So if we look at some of the businesses we've got, such as crypto, we've got two businesses in the UK, Zodia Custody and Zodia Markets. Why would a bank go into crypto? Because we think it's a strong asset class over time. Now, we've seen recent volatility, but we've built those businesses from scratch and with partners that has given us the edge in the market. An SME platform called Solve, which gives us a huge presence, and we'll talk about that in a second with some co-investors, that enables SMEs to be able to participate. So it gives us a unique way of doing the same business, but in a different way with new technology to be able to serve customers and new customers in a much better way.
1: And this 30 Over Ventures, where are they based?
0: Predominantly Singapore, but we're branching out into new markets. So we Um. have a strong presence in India with Solve. We've also got a strong presence and growing presence in Kenya. And why Kenya? Well, if you look at the market footprint there, there's the Silicon Savannah with over 100 million customers. So we have to have a presence there. Uh, We've got partnerships uh, in Ireland with Currency Fair as well as a strong presence in our head office in in the UK and beyond. So we're growing globally. We started off in Singapore. We've now got six offices spanning the world and different businesses in different locations. So we're definitely um, growing globally. And it's something that we're we're keeping a close eye on for new opportunities as, as we go through.
1: And I think, as we all know, the climate in 2021 versus now is very different, right? Uh, The microclimate has changed quite a bit. Just curious to know, how does that impact SE Ventures? Has there been a shift in terms of how you look at different types of companies and the focus?
0: And the macroeconomic climate at the minute, you just have to look at the news and there's ups and downs, the war in Ukraine, high prices, inflation, etc. We're not immune to that. Now, the thesis of what we do still is in banking, we wouldn't necessarily do anything outside of banking. So in terms of the things that we look at, it's things that give us capability in banking, such as AI and looking at compliance tools, as well as getting new customer acquisition and servicing customers and our partners Mm -hmm. in, in a different way. So nothing has changed. So we have a strong financial presence, but also we look at new opportunities as and when they come through, which I think we just have to be cognizant of the wider macroeconomic climate and what funding is available and what challenges are out there. And we have to respond to those like any other business. We have to be very commercial in what we do. But with those risks and those challenges, always comes opportunity. And I think we're in a great place to capitalise on that.
1: So I want to shift gear a little bit and talk about Singapore. We have seen Trust Bank, which was recently launched in Singapore, backed by quite a unique partnership between Standard Chartered Bank and Fair Price Group. Just want to understand, why target a developed city like Singapore and not an emerging market
0: if you look at where we started off on a similar path was with Mox Bank in Hong Kong our biggest presence is there and it goes back to what I was saying earlier is that we're quite happy to disrupt ourselves in a market where we have a strong presence in Hong Kong and Singapore are one of our great presences and so why with NTUC as, as well as other partners in Mox Bank is because they provide their own customer base and we can provide the banking access and together making those strong partnerships you then get scale and you can then service our partners' customers as well as new and our existing customers in a much more efficient way. So I think if you just look at the way in which you do banking, if you just look at the phone in your hand, that is where the way in which most people do business is now. So we have to look at how we respond to that. There's there's very few people that actually go into a bricks and mortar branch these days unless you have to fill in a form. But we try and do that online and we need to develop that presence in city-states and build that capability for the next generation. And it's a great launchpad for further developments in that. But getting a partnership with someone like NTUC provides an amazing presence in Singapore and it's going from great strength to strength just in a very short space of time. So, well, uh, it was a good deal, shall we say.
1: Yeah, I'm a customer of TrustBank as well. I registered recently uh, when it first launched and tried it out. The registration process was quite smooth. And of course, uh, if you shop at NTUC Fairprice Supermarket, you get a lot of benefits. So great experience for consumers.
0: I think that's a good point. I think the way in which that experience happens now is very, very important because people can change between one app and a new bank very, very quickly. We need to make sure that customer experience is unique and special and getting that right technology and the right input into that is pretty key.
1: So you mentioned a little bit about crypto just now, and I think we have all seen how in recent years, crypto has been becoming more prominent in the space, becoming more acceptable in the public sector as well. And we have seen companies, banks, Mastercard, Visa getting into it also. And you mentioned Standard Chartered does offer crypto services in custody and trading. I'd love to understand more what exactly are the products SE offers and how's the up like so far.
0: Yeah, definitely. So if you go back to the size of the market, it's expanded, contracted, depending on which day of the week you look at. So the market currently is around about a trillion dollars, which is an awful lot of money. There's a big institutional presence there that we think we can capitalise on. So companies, hedge funds, VC houses are all holding uh, a lot of digital assets, but you have to think about where they're going to be held. And so Zodiac Custody was born off that premise to say, well, if corporates are holding a large amount of digital assets, if us as a bank with 160-year history can offer that assurance, that trust, then we'll be able to park those in our digital capability. And Custody was born. So Zodia Custody got its uh, ANL license a while back, and it started to pick up customers, and it's doing rather well. Off the back of that, Zodia Market looking at the trading aspect of where customers want to buy and sell crypto assets. And it's a huge market. There's over 12,000 digital assets out of cryptocurrencies. Now, we won't offer all of them because there's a large tail, but the big ones, institutional clients, like to trade in these there's lots of activity in that market and again complementing those two businesses with the custody and the trading businesses it works really well now why would a bank such as standard charter get into that again it goes back to why ventures was born if you look at the new asset classes new ways of doing business crypto is one of those areas and if we can provide assurance and trust into what was perceived as a, a volatile or risky market We give people confidence in that, you know, doing business with us is going to be safe and trusted. And you just have to look at the recent volatility. There's going to be a flight to quality. Uh, And if people look in the market and look at the participants, you've got trusted bank members out there that people will fly to.
1: And in terms of the location where the services are offered right now, it's only in the UK, right? Or across Europe?
0: Correct. UK and Europe. And again, it will grow over time. And I think one of the things that we'll see as well is regulatory adoption or new regulations coming in. And I think as that market grows and, and that develops, I think you will see the Zodias capitalizing on that regulatory framework uh, really well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, for example, in Singapore, DBS is already offering that. And I'm pretty sure other banks will start coming into the the sector as well. And I mean, as we all know, with the recent collapse of FTX, which was one of the top three major crypto exchanges in the world, have you seen an impact? Like, are people and companies more careful now in terms of the exchanges or the counterparty which they interact with? What's your take?
0: I think if you look throughout history, I think it's easy to point at one market. And I think because the market is lightly regulated, there are going to be participants that don't play by the rules or skimp on on various uh, ways of doing business. But if you look back throughout time, you look at Lehman Brothers, you look at a range of different other financial institutions and and other businesses, it's part of the market. Now, what we try to do is, is add assurance to that. So FTX, I think, has not helped, but I think there's still an opportunity out there. And if you look at where crypto is, it's still a very, very young market. It's, what, 13, 14 years old. And probably only in the last five years it's really taken off. So I think we're at the very, very start. If you add then NFTs into the equation and possibly other developments in in the next five years. If we're not in that space to be able to capitalize on it, you're going to be behind the curve. So by building this capability in these businesses, you're in that space to provide that assurance. But again, I think, you know, going back to the the wider economic kind of sentiment at the moment, I think you're going to see some volatility. None, I don't think is going to be immune. But I think if you provide that assurance and that trust, I think you'll weather any kind of particular storms that are out there. Yeah. And what do you think
1: about adoption? Do you feel that because of this incident, it probably might set industry back by a few years? What do you think?
0: It's hard to say. I, mean, I think if you look at the number of users that do have crypto, the figures range between 300 million and 500 million. I mean, there's a lot of people in the world that have it. And I think, you know, the cat's out the bag. People are using it. I think you'll see over time more adoption. And maybe as countries themselves and central banks start issuing crypto assets themselves, you will see a wider adoption. So it's definitely a thing to keep your eye on. But, you know, there's always a market sentiment it'll be forgotten tomorrow and then to will be on to the next thing. So I think it's very fast paced. And I think if you look at my two children and the way in which they value money and see money, I think that's the future generation we're probably building for. Probably a safe accountant like me is probably going to be a little bit more conservative. My children, I think, probably the ones we need to ask that question to.
1: So I guess other than crypto, is there any other sector of fintechs which SE Ventures are looking at or you're excited about, which you
0: can share? Definitely. We have a series of themes and we hold those dear. So we look at digital banking and lifestyles. So we've got the digital banks. We've also got lifestyle apps we have in Singapore, CardsPal and Autumn, a rewards app and a health and wealth platform. We look at obviously digital assets. We've got a digital asset business. Not only do we look at building those, we also invest in, in companies like Ripple, who, who actually make digital capabilities. We have a look at e-commerce and servicing SMEs, so we've got the Solve Proposition. We also have a business called the Standard Chartered Nexus, which is partnered with Bukalapak in Indonesia and looking at uh, providing uh, core banking services there. And also as well as capabilities, so we have fund and, and minority investments where we'll invest in minority stakes in growing and, and emerging businesses to provide Those capabilities, so we've invested in a series of partners. We've got Thought Machine, which is a core banking platform, Asylum 8, which is a compliance tool, digital reasoning. So we'll also invest in things that complement banking as well, such as the back office. So we try and hedge our bets within the the wider banking ecosystem, and we'll see those new challenges. The things to think about in the future is, well, what's the onset of quantum? That's something out there that, you know, 10, 15 years may become a lot more prominent. And the market is very fast paced and moving. So you have to be very agile in this space to look and assess at new opportunities and see what is the impact for us and wider financial community and can we seize on it.
1: To move on to the next segment, I did a little bit of research and I saw that a few years ago, you mentioned something that it says it's hard to make money from data. What was the context? Do you still stand by the statement today?
0: (laughs) I do and that was made at an ICAW uh, event, so the Institute of Chartered Accountants. You can't capitalise data if you make it. A lot of people think of data-driven decisions. It's pretty much the own management information of a business. Now, it's very strong and powerful, but accountants can't really place a value on it unless I sell it to you. And when I sell it to you, then I possibly can. So that was the original context. But I think if you look beyond that, I think if you just take your own phone, how many tens of thousands of pictures do you have on your phone that you don't look at? And I think there's a temptation to have too much data that becomes meaningless. And you have lots of databases with replication of data and only those that are really smart and savvy that will make significant gains off those. So you see like Google, you see like Meta, Data agencies such as Experian, companies like that, use data a lot. Those are the guys that have structured that data in a way. But I think going back to that, it is hard to get a big blob of data, a culmination of it, and try in pieces. But you know, new technologies now try and do that. You've got Power BI; just everyone can get a copy of it. It's a much more powerful tool to join databases together to tell those stories. So I think over time you'll see the usefulness creep in. But I think, yeah, I think it is hard to make money out of data. Still stand behind that. It's very useful to have it. It's how you interpret it. I think is the hard trick
1: so the money does come if you can synthesize the data not raw data itself
0: yes yeah you need to be smart about it yeah it's definitely how you uh, analyze it and how you structure it i think the data comes in a big bag it's all not joined up it's not much use but if it comes in a very powerful way of joining the dots then it can be powerful but again too much information you then don't know what you're looking at so i think there's a balance as well you can have 15 screens and you're all looking at data flashing but unless you can join the dots you might not know what's happening
1: So in your position, because you've seen a lot of startups, you've seen a lot of ventures, what would be your advice for these up-and-coming companies who are trying to survive in this economy, this climate?
0: I think the main thing is you can get carried away with hype and get away with positive sentiment. I think there's always an underlying economic reality to make sure that revenues and costs are matched. And you've always got that funding because I think even a small startup needs to have that liquidity and have a good business model. So definitely have that underlying business model there. I think also having the ability to be nimble, to react, because I think there's a way in which you can rigidly do an execution of a plan or there's those that you can respond to. And I think having that ability to respond in a flexible way will serve small companies well. I think the other one is to look at the opportunities. There's always new opportunities, even in a downturn or even an upturn. There's opportunities out there. and I think it's assessing those quickly and responding to it and being flexible in the approach. So I think where there's fear or where there's opportunity, there's always ability to be able to capitalize on it. So any up and coming entrepreneur or business leader, definitely don't be afraid. It's an area that is for the brave and it does take an awful lot of self-belief and confidence because People will knock you along the way and and doubt and come up with negative sentiment along the way. But I think if you have a strong conviction and you have a belief in it, then carry it through.
1: And I guess that's it, John. Thank you for coming on to the show. Really appreciate talking to you. And we hope to have you on uh, the show in future.
0: Suhan, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope to speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe or follow this show. You can also find 2C2P on LinkedIn, Facebook or Twitter. To read more about this conversation, go to 2C2P.com slash blog.